Right. But yeah, I've just been like one of those guys, you know, I'm just always kind of out doing something, you know? Okay, someone's like, you want to go for a run? Sure, okay. You want to take a swim? Okay, yeah, I'm in, hike, whatever, camp, be outside, mm-hmm. healthy eating, healthy living. Um, that's kind of part of the deal of being on the road all the time, right? If you're just like right. eating out three times a day and not doing anything, then you're you're totally screwed. So You're going to be in trouble yeah, quick. Just yeah, just always trying to keep fit, but nothing, you know... I had never run more than eight miles in my life, you know, mm-hmm. biking. I've done like a few, like the events, like I'm saying, the, the cross country ride. But, um, you know, when I started this whole Ironman pursuit, I didn't even own a bike. So <laughs> that shows you right. how much I ride, right? This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a little bit different than most of the guests I have on, but it's going to be good <laughs> to have somebody on um, who has a little bit dis- different perspective than most of us. Um, he's an international travel writer. Uh, as we will learn throughout this episode, he is a reluctant triathlete, um, and he owns the brand Wake and Wander. Uh, welcome to the show, Will McGough. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. I'm uh, excited to talk to you. Uh, and uh, I know you're an accomplished triathlete, and I am not. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what you come up with here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we'll see how it goes. You know, uh, I think I started off okay. I got your last name right. I usually stumble through the last names as I'm doing my whole read, and I always have to apologize. So you rocked it. You rocked okay it. I'm a writer. I don't have to pronounce anything, which is lucky. So I just have to get the spelling right. So that's good. Yeah, you got plenty of time to think about it. You don't have to worry about oh, did I say Edit, that? Rewrite, <laughs> polish, polish, polish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, it, it seems, uh, at least on the outside looking in, um, the life of a travel writer should be like pretty glamorous and enviable. Uh, can you tell me about how do you make a living as a travel writer, and like, you know, how do you find yourself in this kind of, at least from my perspective, fortunate position? Yeah, sure thing, man. Well, I appreciate that. I, I feel very fortunate and lucky. I love what I do. Um, you know, people have uh, interesting views because, like you say, from the outside, you just see this life of glamour, traveling around, getting all these new experiences, staying places, and presumably getting paid for it, right? Which is a great thing. And all those things are true. Um, but, you know, of course, like as in Welcome to 2019, presentation of self is always different than reality, okay? So, um, yeah, I do have a lot of opportunities. I love what I do. But being a travel writer, you know, it is a grind of a lifestyle, right? Like, you're always on the road. Um, you know, at the, I'm still at the height of my career, I would say, hopefully continuing. But <laughs> as I, um, you know, was coming up, I've been doing this about 10 years now. So there were times uh, when I was on the road three weeks a month, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm back down to more between a week and two a month, um, which is a little more reasonable, but still a lot of travel. Um, so just maintaining relationships and uh, with friends, with uh, lovers, uh, with your family, and just sort of getting any sort of routine going is a challenge. Um, sort of your routine is the anti-routine, um, which is actually kind of a connection I, I found I had with triathletes um, yeah. because just with the lifestyle, that hecticness, um, triathletes are very routine oriented, obviously, in their training, but that really pulls them away from this sort of quote unquote normal 
life uh, that mm -hmm. you would get into, which travel writing also does. So um, I found that interesting. You know, being a writer is awesome. Uh, you have a voice, and but it's like having homework every day for the rest of your life. You know, you are constantly <laughs> having assignments that you need to work on, and then you're going to complete that assignment. Then you're going to turn that in to an editor who is going to give you feedback on that. Um, and typically it's like, okay, make these changes because, you know, it needs to be better or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's just like that constant judgment of being in school. So you'd have to have a thick skin in that regard. But, um, I did my studies in journalism. I got a master's at Temple. I went to Virginia Tech for undergrad. So I kind of always knew, at least like once I got halfway through college, I knew writing was my thing mm -hmm. and uh, have stuck with it and have done different things. Started off in hard news, uh, worked on a sports desk for a little while, but you know, being in hard news, as again you see today, it's very sensationalized. It's very mm -hmm. dramatic. Uh, it's almost like you know, must see TV in a way, entertainment, and so that just really wears on you. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, that wears even more than being on the road because you're dealing with just um, politics and touchy topics, and everything is so polarized these days. So travel, like believe it or not, is kind of a mellow field for a writer because. <laughs> It really combines reporting and storytelling, which I like because I can go and experience something and use my journalistic instincts to sort of sneak, you know, um, you know, find a story. But then I'm not, um, you know, it's lighthearted. I'm telling that, you know, rep I'm, I'm going to tell a story about what I experience, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and as a creative writer, which I consider myself, um, that's really cool. And that led really, really well into the book because, you know, I was just putting myself out there in this situation and seeing what happened and then telling my personal tale. So, um, yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell my career. And, um, you know, I still do a lot of travel writing. Like I say, I'm on the road every month. Um, but uh, with daily journalism, you know, you're so scattered. So you're always working on, uh, you know, you're in Croatia writing a story about Poland or, you know, you're in Hawaii writing a story about South America. And so you're just always kind of jumping around. And I know how that sounds. You're probably like, okay, shut up, Will. Yeah, that doesn't sound so <laughs> uh, But um, at my, as a writer, you know, you want to kind of really immerse yourself into a project. Uh, today's journalism is so, like, superficial. Ten things to do in Honolulu, five reasons mm -hmm. to go to Brazil. You well, know. I mean, listicles are really, are really clickable. Uh, so it's all about the listicles. You know, dude. And, you know, it's really <laughs> the death of writing. But uh, I'm yeah, trying you know. to keep it alive. You know, it's fine. So, yeah, that's kind of my background. And then, um, you know, just like I say, writing books is something I've always wanted to do. And um, I had the opportunity to, to do that recently, as you know. So it's, Yeah, it's so for anybody that's confused, and I think I'll actually make this the, the title of the episode, um, Swim, Bike, Bonk here is the, the book we're talking about, which we'll get to here, here in a minute. Um, I should have introduced that sooner. So everyone's like, book? What book? What are you talking about a book? <laughs> um, I, I do want to like – I'm kind of curious, like when you're traveling – I mean, since you are essentially on assignment, you're working while you're traveling and doing these things, um, it kind of makes me think about, you know, just the average person now uh, who's, a, you know, has Instagram and, and Facebook and all these things, and they're like reporting on their own lives. I have this sense that they aren't really living the moment as much as reporting it. So it makes me wonder about you in that, your work is to report on these experiences do you feel like you can actually experience and live them or or are you is your brain always turning and like not fully present because you have to report on it later 
I get what you're saying. Yeah, I totally understand that. Um, sometimes you feel that way, especially if you're on a media trip or you're at an event, you know, where you're surrounded by other journalists um, and there's like 20 cameras around you and you're all trying to get a photo of the same thing. Uh, it's like, okay, there's this beautiful person or mountain or scenery or moment. And yeah, everybody's just so focused on capturing it. Um, for their Instagram or for their story, whatever it's going to be, you know, that that can be very distracting. But, um, you know, I, I think in travel writing, like anything else, you know, the cream rises. And so you have people who are, yeah, just like, you know, almost unbearable on the road. I'm sorry to say, like have this new generation of influencers and bloggers that uh, really rely on social media and their whole shtick is just presenting uh, via social media what they're doing. I've always been a traditional journalist format where I'm um, pitching articles to publications. So I'm less reliant on that immediate satisfaction and that, uh, you know, putting something up for my followers to see. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at my social media, you know, I, I just have a very low footprint. Um, um, I don't know, I guess I just was missed the boat on that, born a little after it came into, but, um, or before I should say. Anyway, I, I'm old in that regard. 34 going on 70 with social media. But so I, um, you know, I really try hard, Jesse. I think that's a great question because I really make it a point when I'm on assignment, um, even if I have specific instructions about something that I'm to cover, um, I make a point to go set some time for myself and just go out and have an experience, right? Mm -hmm. And that often turns into uh, the story, or at least in my opinion, the best story of the trip. Uh, I'm a freelancer, so even when I'm somewhere on assignment where I'm working for a publication for a specific story, I'm totally able and open to finding stories for other publications. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, with with the uh, pressure for social media and stuff, I see a lot of that where people are totally distracted and even in personal right. travel. Quite honestly, man, I mean, the listicle stuff, we joke about it, but it creates checkbox travel. You know, you're standing in front of Right, it's like, oh, I, okay, I went... I went and I did this, I did that. I did I do all the things that I needed to do to really enjoy this city. It's like what I did you actually spend time to, you know, let's say like I like ice cream, so I'm gonna go to like say the top ice cream shop in Seattle or whatever. It's like did did you spend the time to enjoy the ice cream you ate or did you eat it just to be like, Oh, I ate it, off to the next thing, got that picture, like good to go. Totally, man. I, I avoid that at all costs. And and, and yeah, of course, like there's things you want to do because you've heard about them and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're going into that experience to have the experience, mm-hmm. not to just tell people you did it. Right. And right. so that's a distinction. And I have a lot of things about my travel style that I really um, focus on to avoid that. Um, everything from what you wear to how you present yourself in terms of trying to uh, fit in with the locals and to uh, draw attention to yourself, but not in a bad way. Like you don't want to walk, you walk down the street with a big camera on your neck and like nobody is going to treat you the same way as right. if you're just sort of an under the radar person. Um, so yeah, I always try and dig in. And quite honestly, like if everybody's going to that one ice cream store, uh, because that's the most famous, like I'm just as likely to take a walk around the block and ask three people like, hey, what's your favorite ice cream store around here and get three different responses and then just go try those, you know, and then mm-hmm. maybe that's the story uh, because everybody in my field is writing about that number one place. So yeah. if I can kind of discover somewhere else, all the better. So almost it works uh, the opposite where, you know, everybody is running towards these most famous attractions. If you kind of look the other way, um, you find that not only do you get a more authentic experience, but for me as a journalist, I might even get a better story because everybody's mm-hmm. right pitching that one, but I'm right. over here writing about this. So, right. uh, but yeah, that's a challenge in, in 2019 here, man. Everybody wants to, 
do the biggest and best thing and, pre- and more importantly present it to their followers so um it, it's kind of the way it is yeah you're you're talking about like walk around the walk makes me think about um i not in a serious way but so i love montreal and I, i've spent several trips going to montreal specifically for a couple for a month at a time and there are several instances where like the better restaurant is across the street and i always at the time i thought um somebody should pitch a show to like travel channel or you know whoever about doing a show like across the street what's across the street from the number one attraction so like um, I think I saw you'd been to Quebec City. I don't know if you've been to Montreal, but there's like Montreal is known for smoked meat. So there's Schwartz's, yeah, Schwartz's which everybody definitely. writes about Schwartz's. Well, right well, across the street, there's another spot. across the street. Yeah. It's called the Main, and oh. they have even bigger and just as delicious yeah. <laughs> smoked meat sandwiches without the line. Um, same thing, poutine. Everybody tells us about La, La Keys right across the street. You go to Mapu Mouye, which is a Portuguese restaurant, and they have, um, I will say in controversial fashion the best poutine in in montreal uh so like i think there's definitely a story there when you stop focusing on then yeah the number one on that listicle and start figuring out what interests me and like what else is out there totally um i i think you'd be a great travel writer jesse that's a great <laughs> and i i know exactly what you're talking about um and I think that would be a great show across the street. I love it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think a reason for it too is just the regurgitation now because there's so much content out there. And quite honestly, like many travel writers are just armchair, armchair travel writers. Like they're right. not actually- Just in like the doing research the time. and then- Yeah, they're just the researching article. online and making lists. And dude, like you don't have to be a writer to do a list, right? I mean, right. I say the list is the death of writing as a joke, but it's kind of true because you don't need a background in writing to go to Montreal and write up the top five poutine places, right? Right. But, um, you know, you do need to be a writer to do that old school magazine style storytelling. So with that shift, it's sort of brought more people into the business who aren't necessarily writers. Um, and then so with the internet, et cetera. But I agree, that would be a great show. I like your travel style, man. Yeah, like discovering, <laughs> you know, some places are famous for a reason, right? And you want right. to see them, um, you know, but yeah, where is that alternative spot? Where um, and not only for your own personal experience, but for travel writing, that's a great strategy. Yeah, I just think about I don't know I, I don't know if it's still their uh, motto. I think it's Avis Car Rental. Their their motto I think it's Avis motto for a while was uh, we're number two. We try harder. So oh, it's like, like that, that kind of attitude <laughs> where it's like we know we're not the best, so like we're gonna pull out all the stops. It's like that that attitude with the restaurants. I think. Totally. One thing I do, uh, just to put a bow on that, you know, it's like I, my company is Wake and Wander, and that's sort of my my mantra, you know, wake up and kind of wander around, see what you find. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many people, they're like, how do you research when you go somewhere, you know, like, how do you know what you're going to do, etc. Um, and I have a couple of rules about that. I rarely look at pictures, because mm-hmm. now I'm also a tour guide in Hawaii. And one thing I see over and over again are pictures of Hawaii, like, it's like my local beach. I'm like, dude, it does not look like that. You know, it's been edited. Yeah. It's been so the Internet and Instagram create so many false expectations about what it actually is. So people come and they're disappointed because it doesn't look like the photo. So I always try to kind of read about places, but not necessarily overwhelm myself with visuals. Um, and then I also, you know, I don't really pay attention to what everybody else is saying to do. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe you want to be aware of it, of course, but 
you don't want to set your trip up around that. I always get my intel once I get on the ground. You know, I land at the airport. You know, I get a cup of coffee. Hey, you know, where where do you go uh, with your friends for dinner? Hey, I'm in the cab. Hey, like, what what's your thought? And you just ask literally everybody, and that's part of traveling because you're putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. um, but you get so many recommendations on the fly, and yeah, sometimes that turns into a disaster. Someone sends you to an awful place, but yeah. hey, like everywhere you go, like I look at travel as experiences. Like I don't have to. You know, like that's what I'm after an experience. Like I'm not out for the best and the worst. I hate this classification of best and worst. No, like an experience is an experience. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to compare like Hawaii to Quebec City? Like they're totally different. Which one's better? I mean, they're not even the same place. Right. It's, so, it's, you're right. This idea of like every magazine trying to be like, here are the top 10 beaches in the world. It's like, what, you've been to every beach in the world? So you know that, you know, it's like, come on, it's, it's just a joke. So see travel as an experience, like, each individual experience is a different grape. You combine all them, they make a fine wine. You know, I, I just, that's how you have to look at it, I think. Yeah. I think it's a pretty good perspective. It's like, uh, I know my girlfriend would hate you because she wants things planned out before we arrive at someplace. <laughs> but I'm definitely more your style where I'm like, yeah. we're going someplace. We'll figure it out when we get there. Totally. I don't, like, I hate itineraries, which can make for, um, we actually just, uh, we're in Oahu a couple of months ago. And kind of took my approach and it ended up being kind of a pain some days just because the tour buses started following us around because we wouldn't get going until the middle of the day. Um, so in that, that aspect, uh, it could be bad, but we, you know, we did do plenty of things um, off the beaten path. So uh, I'm, I'm with you holistically on that philosophy there. Yeah. It's easy to say, too, sitting here in practice. I get it. Most people, like, you know, they travel one trip or two trips a year. You don't yeah. want to waste your time. I'm just, you know, a happy medium's good. Like, plan some things. You know, you want to see the top attractions. Like, you don't want to go and, you know, not see the Taj Mahal, right? Like, right. okay. But, you know, like, leave some room for flexibility. Leave that spontaneity in your travels, right? Yeah. Hey, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Allow yourself to, like, make friends to break plans, to make new plans, that kind of thing. Instead of, like we talked about earlier, so just checking everything off the list, coming back from vacation and needing a new vacation because you're so exhausted from checking that list off. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we'll kind of move towards the book. I want to ask you about, um, in the book you talked about growing up, you swam, you I think, on swim team. Um, and then your mom telling you not to breathe. Yeah. Uh, and then it seemed like you, I think you said you played college volleyball as well. So how do those things come together? Yeah, uh, yeah. How do, how, how do you, like, I didn't even know that they, it, you're talking about like an actual collegiate volleyball team, not, in, or was it an intramural team? No, 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 collegiate team. Um, okay, I so, didn't even know there was a collegiate men's volleyball. That's why I was like, well, right. Okay. Most people don't. There's only like a couple dozen, like, I don't know. I don't know exactly, but two, three dozen division okay. one men's teams. Right. So it's a small pool. Basically, if you're not the upper echelon of volleyball players or if you're just, you know, not going to pursue a D1 sort of career, everybody in college plays club. And that's not intramural. It's sort of in between, okay. but very competitive, you know, like hundreds of teams around the country. A lot of players that exhaust their eligibility or get injured at the D1 level will come down and play club because they have uh, extended eligibility there. 
Um, so yeah, we practiced four times a week. We traveled uh, pretty much once or twice a month to go to tournaments. So yeah, I was an athlete in college. Um, growing up, you know, I grew up East Coast outside of Philly. So sports are a big part of the culture out East. I grew up playing soccer and baseball and um, I swam. Like Swimming was probably the biggest love-hate of my life because, at least in my family too, because my mom loved me as a swimmer because mm-hmm. she thought I was so good, quote unquote, whatever that meant when you're nine years old, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it was OK for me. Like, I didn't mind the meets and stuff, but I hated practicing. It was just so boring, like just mm-hmm. sitting in a pool, staring at the bottom of the pool, lap after lap. You know, mm-hmm. you're it's summertime, you're free from school, but now you're waking up at 7 a.m. every morning to go to practice. So I don't know, like it was just one of those things I did for a long time. Um, basically from, you know, when I was five or so up until I went to high school. Um, and finally, you know, I had the courage to stand up and say, mom, that's it. I'm done. You know, I'm not doing it. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then in high school, I, I was a basketball player growing up too. And I transitioned that, you know, I, I realized I didn't necessarily have all the basketball skills, but I was athletic and that mm-hmm. translated very well over to volleyball where it's, um, you know, just a different skill set, uh, skill set, you know, yeah. um, so I'm not that tall. I'm 6'2". Uh, so I was actually one of the shortest guys on the volleyball team. Still taller but, than average, but not for volleyball, yeah. Yeah, when you can jump and, you know, and the, there's many dynamics to the game with the defense and the serving and passing and everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've always been athletic, but never, you know, always in the sense of team sports uh, or in the sense of um, – Uh, that camaraderie, you know, like being a part of a team and playing and uh, baseball was huge for me growing up, you know, sitting in the dugout or, you know, those summer nights with your team. Swimming was really the only thing I could compare to the triathlete stuff because that was sort of like a loner sport. And, you know, that was the one I ended up really not liking that much. So, Mm -hmm. um, but as you know, you know, swimming is, you know, considered to sort of be the the hardest part of a triathlon in terms of someone's comfort and where your background can really make a big difference. Right. Cause it is technical. You can't, you can't muscle your way through the swim and do well. You, it, it is absolutely technically minded. So if you don't have that background, it's a completely different mindset and shift to have to work on that technique so much to get that ingrained. If you know, if you didn't start that way when you were a kid, hundred percent, hundred percent. And yeah, so I had that background. And then when I got into high school, I ran cross country. But as I explained in the book, you know, I, it was just sort of a social club, you know, like jogging after school, pretty much. The meets, we had, you know, 70 people on our team. So at that time, it was like your top seven were your, your go to guys. Yep. You know, I was not in that. So it was just kind of like la di da, like, you know, okay, let's meet up with the girls' team during the cross country meets. You know, like we'll run, but who cares yeah. what, what happens? Um, and so, uh, yeah, like, I, but I've just always been generally active, you know. I'm, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I like to hiking is a lot, you know, one of my big things. It's not an extreme aerobic, but I enjoy that. Um, swimming, snorkeling, surfing, um, you know, pick up basketball every now and then. I just, you know, I sit, you know, as a writer, you sit a lot, but um, as a travel writer, you know, I'm also getting out a lot, walking mm-hmm. a lot, experiencing a lot. So, um, yeah, just generally active. And I'm always up for that kind of like people are like, hey, like, I, in the book, I talk about riding my bike across Nicaragua. That was, you know, a 10 day thing. Um, but, um, the, I've never done like events that I'm, Oh, I'm training for and gearing up for mm-hmm. like in the triathlon world, but I have had sort of mental and physical tests, if that makes sense. Right. So I was, I was very interested to see how that would apply to your world. Um, right. 
Right. But yeah, I've just been like one of those guys, you know, I'm just always kind of out doing something, you know. Okay, someone's like, you want to go for a run? Sure. Okay, you want to take a swim? Okay, yeah, I'm in, hike, whatever, camp, be outside, mm-hmm. healthy eating, healthy living. Um, that's kind of part of the deal of being on the road all the time, right? If you're just like right. eating out three times a day and not doing anything, then you're you're totally screwed. So You're going to be in trouble yeah, quick. Just yeah, just always trying to keep fit, but nothing, you know. I had never run more than eight miles in my life, you know, mm-hmm. biking. I've done like a few like the events, like I'm saying, the, the cross country ride. But, um, you know, when I started this whole Ironman pursuit, I didn't even own a bike. So <laughs> that shows you right. how much I ride, right? Right. So to back up, because we both have the contest because I've read the book and you wrote the book and lived it. Um, so the, the premise of, of Will's book is that he um, and I will say like an idiot <laughs> I say that lovingly, but like he I'll say that too. <laughs> decided for his very first triathlon, he was going to do an Ironman. And many people um, along the way also said he was an idiot, but he continued anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the book is basically a, a, a recounting of the trials and tribulations uh, leading up to the race and the race itself. Um, so, right now, I do want to tell you something. I got to tell you a side story here because. I agree I'm an idiot, but now you might feel a little bad for me because originally the way this book came in is that this publisher and I were discussing other topics, which it didn't work out, separate story. But then the Iron Man came up, you know, and I'm based out here in Hawaii. Right. And uh, at this time in 2017, it was leading up to the 40th anniversary in 2018. Mm-hmm. And, you know, triathlon participation has been growing like a weed. Yep. So this was kind of like a, you know, a good time, we thought, to maybe do something on it. And so my publisher was really like, hey, why don't we work on sort of a historical account, you know, looking at where Iron Man started mm-hmm. and seeing mm-hmm. to where it is now. And, you know, that could be an interesting project. And as you know, like the book has a lot of those components in it, right. kind of retracing the steps and the history of it. So that was the, the initial goal. And when I was talking to the publisher, this was like July of 2017, firming all this up. My plan was like, okay, like I want to, I'm an immersive journalist. Like I want to do an Ironman or at least like take part or try or whatever, get involved. So I'm thinking it's July, 2017. Like I'll train this winter. Um, I was looking up the Ironman schedule for next summer. I'm like, okay, maybe next July I'll do one or next fall. You know, the publishing process is so long. We'll turn the book in like, you know, right around the 40th anniversary. You know, we could still get it out in time. I could train. So all in my mind, I'm having this timeline going um and this is just me being naive because i you know this is my first book right so then we we get to signing on the dotted line and i'm like i reveal this timeline to them at like the final meeting and they're like great you know we love your outline we love what you're going to do um the only thing we need to change is that like you know you don't have that much time you need to have the book written and turned in by um january 2018 Mm -hmm. and i'm like guys that's six months from now you know like The last Iron Man of the year is in November. It's August first. Like, and they're like, "Well, you know, do you want to do it or not?" <laughs> so, so I'm just saying, like, I didn't. It comes off as me, like, and of course, like, I try to be confident about this, and there's a little cockiness there. But this mm-hmm. was not my plan of like, oh, let me just show everyone like that I'm awesome and I'm gonna try this without. Like, I, I kind of like got forced into this mm-hmm. uh, in a way. Like, it just was not my initial plan to do See, that. that's that's what I, well, I kept i kept reading through it like going back to the beginning and trying to i'm like how did he get roped into this like i kept trying to figure out like did, did you come up with it on your own where you're just just at like a fever dream all of a sudden and you're like i'm doing it 
Like I, I, I could, I kept trying to figure out, and I don't, I'm not sure if it's in the book. I maybe I missed it. I no, don't I don't. I don't talk about why. You know, yeah, I, I, like, just, I don't think you talk about why you ended up in this predicament of having th- three and a half months to train. That's the idiotic part um, so, for yeah. for you listening um, of getting ready for an Ironman. Not necessarily doing it for your first, which is not to me very advisable. But also <laughs> on top of that, having three and a half months to do it. So. Totally. Yeah. And so I, I just want you to feel better about that, you know, because I feel like <laughs> triathletes reading this might just immediately be like, OK, is this guy's trying to show us up or what is he? What is his yeah. goal here? And yeah, OK, like I'm a competitor. So it gets to that point a little bit where people are doubting me and I'm like, well, you know what? You know, screw you. But uh, <laughs> this was not my intention to come in and make a mockery of this or anything like I I. Really, you know, it's just it's the way it worked out, man. And it it kind of made the story like, you know, once I got over the initial shock and, Mm -hmm. you know, fear of that, I was like, okay, you know what? This does kind of because the one thing you know that you need more than anything to compete in these things is motivation, you know. And so the fact when someone tells you like, okay, like 100 days go and you don't own a bike and you've never ran more than eight miles in your life and you used to be a good swimmer when you were a kid but now you know the most swimming you do is like snorkeling around mm-hmm. you're like okay i'm motivated <laughs> you know yeah and when you have something on the line of like okay uh you know i have to write about this so that was sort of the push into it and that's why you know the book just starts out with a bang like all right today's the day i'm i'm telling everybody here we <laughs> go you know? see i noticed even like I, try, I don't know when the turn was, but it was like, even for the first month, you know, you start a hundred some odd days out. And even for the first like 30 days, it seems like you're still just kind of meandering around, like not really yeah. getting into training yet. <laughs> totally. Yeah. There was like all this in my mind too. Like, ah, oh, well maybe, you know, like I go to my doctor, I'm like, maybe he's going to say like, dude, don't do this, you know, or like maybe Drops there's the going to be some, uh, something that's going to, you know, it's just, I kind of, for a while, I just like doing all the research. It was just hard to believe. It was so hard to believe I was going to do it that I just did, wasn't doing it, you know? Yeah. And then finally something clicks where it's like, all right, like you can't read about training forever. You just have to start doing it, you know, yeah. and like start somewhere. And I don't have all the gear yet, but how am I going to piece that together? And okay, like start where you, you know, start with what you have and start where you can and just let's go for it. Um, so yeah, there was a bit of meandering, which cut down the time and, uh, <laughs> You know, but again, that just even more built this pressure and this motivation, this drive. Um, I don't know. I guess it just took me a while to get in that right headspace to be like, okay, now I feel like because, you know, like training plans, like everybody has a million different opinions. Right. So Mm -hmm. I spent a while trying to figure out, well, like, okay, what should I do? Like, what's the expert advice, quote unquote, on training three months out and turns out there is none because no expert would ever recommend that right Right. so uh sorting through it all and being like okay what what should i do what's the approach here and then finally just being like all right man like i just got to do something so Mm -hmm. let's get going yeah did you end up writing your own schedule or did did bmac help you or or how did how did the schedule come together yeah, so I had the influence from carries like BMAC and Drew who were like, hey, you know, these are kind of benchmark goals you want to get. But initially, yeah, I just, or uh, eventually I just started going with uh, how I felt, you know. I had mm-hmm. a lot of IT band issues, as you've read about. Yeah. Um, and my scheduling was a nightmare, uh, yeah. as it is for a lot of people who are doing this. Um, and so just to fit everything all in, 
Um, but mostly I just really tried to work on my mental aspects and mm -hmm. I just figured like somewhere in my head, which is the dumbest thing to think when you're talking about these distances, but I'm just sort of like, what kept driving me was like, okay, you know, I'm not quite there yet, but you know what? It's one day, man. Like I can gear up for one day, you know, like mm -hmm. I, when I get to that starting line, like I'm, you know, like whatever it is, even if I haven't run 10 miles, like one day I can just, I can gut it out, which it obviously out. Yeah. is a stupid, foolish thing. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I just, I mean, what you see is what you get, man. Like in the book, that, that's the timeline is true. The story is true. Like I, I was kind of winging it and just fitting in wherever I can and just reacting to my body um, mm -hmm. and just trying to learn as I go and see like, what is my capability? How fast can I push? Um, and my body would push back, you know, I would feel injured or feel tired and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and just kind of navigating through that as I'm sure, like, I mean, all the best laid plans for your training, you're an expert, you have these, but I'm sure at times, right. You have like, you're like, Hey, I can't stick to this schedule because of X, Y, Z or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I've been through, yeah. I've been through injury actually recently and, and I have, so I have a coach and he writes out my schedule, but I also have the ability to pull the plug at any given time if necessary he trusts me enough and i know myself well enough there's if it's like this is not happening today then i have that ability to say okay that's that's it for today let's you know make a smarter approach at this yeah what surprised me was i mean this is like swimming biking and running but it's like riddled with injuries like it's so easy to get hurt like i don't get that like it's that was something repetitive just... motion it's the same motion over and over and over and over and over again so that's, that's why that's why it's suggested that you're an idiot for doing it in three months because you need your body needs time to get make muscle stronger, to make ligaments and then all those attachments stronger and like not have your bones break down from repetitive, you know, pounding to like bones and getting in stress fractures. And there's so many ways that your body can break through repetitive motion that that's why when you try to cram something like that in so quickly, the risk for injury is so high. Super high. I think it was like 70 some percent chance of like yeah. of getting injured as a triathlete, which like blew me away. I would have never guessed that, that, you know, these seemingly basic things that we've done forever, what you would have that, but it's like the intensity, I guess. And then really the mental breakdown that you experience, you know, and just how your world becomes so distorted. Um, at least for me as an outsider, I mean, there's one example in the book where I talk about, you know, like you can't go backwards, right? Like I remember going on like a, a three mile, a three hour ride and then a seven mile run and I'm all stoked. And a couple of days later I do a two hour ride and a five mile run. It's like, dude, that's a huge workout, right? But after that workout, I'm like, man, I slacked off. You know, yeah. I'm like, what? Your like, new normal is raised. It's, yeah, it's, it's totally different perception. <laughs> yeah. And just like I, that headspace was baffling to me. And I don't like, how do you just go for a run after dinner anymore? Like you do all these competitions, you do all these events, well, like pushing I mean, yourself. Like, are you satisfied with like, Hey, I'm going to go on a 30 minute run before dinner. I mean, you gotta, it's like nothing for you. Like, right. Yeah. Satisfied? It's definitely tough now. As I was telling you, and I've, anybody who's watched the podcast knows this. I, you know, I spent eight years trying to become a professional triathlete. So yeah, I've backed off this last year and I really felt kind of aimless. Like I, I don't even know what I'm doing. And I actually kind of think, you know, you talked to uh, some of the people that founded uh, Iron Man or really kind of did the very first one. And then you yourself kind of had this kind of almost laissez-faire attitude about being active. And I've kind of found a challenge like that. Next uh, next Friday, I'm flying out to Colorado Springs to run the incline. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Bike speak? Uh, no, it's um, 
so the the Man Manitou Springs incline. So it's a uh, nine tenths of a mile, and it raises it goes up two thousand feet in that period of time. So the average grade is about forty percent. So I'm just like trying to find a new challenge. Going to go see how how it goes. <laughs> yeah. So it's like once you've done it, and I raced half. I haven't done a full. I haven't had the interest in doing the full because I obliterate myself on the halves. Um, but yeah, coming back down, it's like. Okay, well, on Sunday, I used to ride 80 miles and then go for a you know half-hour run after that. Well, now I only do two and a half, three hours and run 20 minutes. And it's like, oh, I'm not doing as much anymore. I'm not doing that much. Yeah, I definitely feel that all the time. That was like a mental trap. I just felt like, oh, my God, like I'm going to totally lose touch of my normal life. Like even <laughs> like when I would go on hikes with friends, you know, I really yeah. tried to maintain a lifestyle. And I'd be like, just on the hike, you know, it's beautiful Hawaii hike. And I'm like, man, I'm just wasting my time out here. Like, this is not benefiting me. You have this monkey on your back that you're just like, man, two months or one month from now, I got to be ready to do this. And literally anything that doesn't contribute to your training is like seem as a distraction or something right. standing in your way. And I, I just, that was really hard for me. That was like, I think one of the hardest parts of it of just sort of, um, recognizing the sacrifice you have to make and then sort of humorously sort of discovering that a lot of people who are into this stuff, you know, date other triathletes mm -hmm. or, you know, this, this is their social calendar or as yeah. I, you know, jabs like the anti-social calendar, you know, like right. this is like, you know, this is what they're committed to doing. And that's so admirable. Uh, I just don't know if <laughs> that's just, that was the hardest part for me. That really yeah. was like integrating in that way to that intensity and just having to sort of eliminate everything else in your life when you have these races coming up. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you like in the beginning of the book? Yeah, there's definitely like a lot of derision. I remember um, uh, I went, I saw my massage therapist as I was reading through your book, and I was like, "Man, I hate this guy." I was only about halfway through the book because <laughs> you know you definitely definitely had that like naive, like whatever, like I don't like you. I you know I can do this attitude. Although reflecting on myself. If I was in your position, I'd probably feel the same way where it's like having this negative attitude about, well, I can't do this, but I'm going to do it. Like, it doesn't help you, you know, even if it's like a, a crazy impossible challenge and maybe you're not going to make it. But trying to buy into these people saying, OK, it, you know, like like you talk about uh, Mr. I'm on another level, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can't like you can't buy into that attitude of you're not good enough. You're not going to be able to make it. Um so kind of like transformed through it, but yeah, I mean, if I were to listen to all these people, like there were so many people being negative enough, right. Yeah. That if I was going to submit to that and be like, okay, you guys are right. Then wh why try? Right. So right. at some point I realized, okay, you know, I'm on a tight physical timeline, mm -hmm. but mentally I think I can get where I need to be. And, you know, of course, like, like I say, I'm a competitor. Like I, yeah, I, I, yeah you're going to give me hell. I'm going to give it right back to you. Like I'm going to, not going to let you, push me down and tell me I'm not good enough. Like I'm, that's going to motivate me even more. Yeah. And I think that's just kind of like a life attitude. I mean, for me, but for a lot of people, it's mm -hmm. like when you meet resistance, like how do you respond to that? You know, are you yeah. going to push back? Um, and if you're doing triathlons, you better push back because you know, <laughs> even when you're in top physical condition, you're going to be hit with hitting walls, you know, of some degree. Mm -hmm. So you need to learn to get through that. Um, so I, I just realized that, okay, there's no way I'm going to get to where I should be physically. But what I can do is just be like 100% confident mentally. And yeah, mm -hmm. that I get that breeds cockiness in a way. Yeah. Um, 
And to be fair, I'm, I'm humbled at times, for sure. Uh, but I just didn't want anybody else telling me, you know, oh, don't, you know, because then it's just, okay, why, why do it? If I'm not going right. to believe in myself. And I mean, even my own family was like, you're crazy. You know, my sister's yeah. a big marathon runner and she was like, you're going to die. You know, I'm like, okay, well, we'll see about that. You know, so yeah, it's it just, you have to get to the mentality and I don't know, maybe you can shed light to me. I just assume that's where everybody gets to because at some point, you know, like there's, you're training, but there's always going to be somewhere where you're not quite ready. So it's like, are you really going to have that doubt in your head? Or like, you can't have that doubt when you get the starting line, can you? You have to wipe it out. What choice do you have? Yeah. I mean, you have to try your best. Everybody has their own demons to deal with. Some people are afraid of succeeding. Some people are afraid of failing. You know, some, some people are afraid of this or that, like all kinds of different things that people are afraid of. And we all deal with them differently. Like sports psychology is an entire field of performance enhancement that that's like developing and becoming a new thing and trying to deal with all the weird little quirks that everybody has. Um, I, I did, as I went on through the book, I kind of came to the perspective thinking about you prior to having kind of met you digitally here. I, I, you made me think about this friend I have who's not a particularly great runner. I ran with him in high school on the cross country team. And it made me think about if he came to me, cause he sometimes comes up with overly ambitious plans. I, I think I would have said to him, Okay, his name's Daniel. I said I would have said, okay, Daniel, you're an idiot, but if you're if you're gonna do this, like let's figure out how the best how best to do it. You know, if you're like you're determined to do it, let's put together the best plan we can. Totally. Well, that's basically what everyone told me. They're like, yeah. you're an idiot, but okay, <laughs> like I'll help you if you're gonna try and do this. You know, yeah. I mean, everybody from B Mac to even Gordon Haller was kind of like. Wow, that's ambit and he's the guy that, you know, he didn't really train for his. He was just yeah. like he did these things, right? So I think he was kind of shocked. He wasn't shocked that I didn't have a plan, because he would never have a plan, but he was shocked that I, you know, had just never done anything in this regard. Right. Um so do, do you feel that you're like one thing I realized is that because of this way you're pushing your limits and everything like that, and you're constantly having to up your game that, um, you know, a lot of people describe like an addiction in a way to this physical activity. Do you, do you find that you you're in that space where, you know, like the more you do, the more you want to do. And like, do you feel addicted to triathlons? Um, I, I don't know about triathlons in particular, but I am a, addicted to, I'll say addicted that we can debate about the semantics of that word later, Fair. but, yeah, yeah. um, the, the, the idea of being successful and in, I channel that through athletics a lot where like, you know, I ran, I, I ran on a scholarship in college, but I'm not good enough to be a professional runner. Like I was like, I could run sub 16 for the 5k. So pretty quick, but like you're going to be a prof professional runner. You're going to be in the third, you're going to be in the thirteens <laughs> to be a professional runner. So like not even close and, and it gets, you know, astronomically harder, logarithmically harder as you go up in that scale. So for me, it was. A, a, a personal challenge but also i'm big on i do another show called runner's high on i touch talk about long distance running and that kind of stuff and i'm big on this like uh rate of perceived exertion for training not so big on like let's only focus on pace or let's in it, it a lot of it revolves around kind of chasing this feeling where you are almost in this zen-like state where your 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 mind is kind of fallen away and you kind of become pure motion so in a lot of ways i'm chasing that and that's the addiction is like 
you have to put yourself through enough pain um, and suffering and enjoy the vast majority of it to try to find this place where you're going hard and the pain is there, but it's not bothersome. You're simply you're like you're simply noticing it. It's a state of meditation almost. So I'm I'm kind of after that. Okay, you're after the pain and suffering. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean I and I've talked to a lot of I talked to a lot of triathletes. A lot of triathletes better than me. Um, funny enough, I talked to um, Adam Fye, who's a pro triathlete. Last week, his episodes are coming out as we speak this week, and um, like he he does Ironman. And he like did he did two Ironmans three weeks apart, and didn't originally plan on doing that, but he's he wasn't after the suffering. He was after the challenge, and he's trying to you know get better and make his way to Kona. But like I don't know that I've between pro triathletes, amateur triathletes, uh, ultra marathoners, I don't know that anybody is after the suffering, but they are okay with dealing with the suffering to find the thing that they are after, which is usually a sense of accomplishment or that high or something that comes as a result of the suffering. Totally. No, that makes total sense. I kind of found that as well. People, when they say that they like the challenge of an Ironman, what I think they mean is that they like having completed that challenge. Right. You know, they, they, it's so, and for me, I gotta be honest. I mean, I, I worked out in those three months more than I ever have in my life. I mean, I'm a generally active guy, but in terms of intensity and, um, Dude, those were some nice nights on the couch, man. I'll tell you, like, <laughs> you feel good. You're like, yeah. man, I just worked out for like four hours and I went hard. And now I'm, uh, you know, I'm feeling good and complete. And you feel like you've earned whatever you do. Like for me, like having a beer or like I was like crushing two baked potatoes and a big chicken bread. You know, I just like <laughs> you just feel like, wow, like I did something, you know. And, yeah. that, you know, I respect that. That is a, a feeling that's you know, that a lot of people don't get, you know, and that it's harder to get in our modern world where everything you do now, is like, doesn't require much effort. So yeah. that was a cool feeling. And, you know, when you have those off days, like, you really feel accomplished and you feel like, wow, okay, you know, I'm doing it. So I appreciated that. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering, how, like, did you expect, um, and again, you talk about this in the book, but I'm curious, on a deeper dive, did you expect the whole journey to be kind of as emotional as it ended up being, you know, the various times, you know, through training, uh, leading up to the race, the race itself, all the emotions that you kind of, I'll say, suffered through, but experienced, um, did you anticipate that or was that kind of a surprise to you? You know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't because when you look at it from the outside, you think it's just like, okay, I mean, it's just like an athletic event. Okay, maybe you'll have some emotions of just nervousness or, you know, excitement or whatever, but what I was surprised was when you're experiencing such physical agony, as I'll describe mm -hmm. it, um, where your mind takes you and mm -hmm. what you think of, um, it's it's almost like your life is flashing before your eye. I mean, it, that's a little dramatic, but it's mm -hmm. like things would come into my head that, you know, I'd picture friends, I would picture family, I would have these kind of like deep emotional conversations with myself um, while as a result of this physical agony. and. Mm -hmm grinding that out was something that, you know, I like I, it's almost like meditative, you know, I've always kind of, you know, you're walking on a treadmill, you let your mind go, it kind of it goes through all the problems you're having. Well, okay, walking on a treadmill, that could be hard, I guess, but that's nothing compared to, you know, going on a hundred mile bike ride, right? So right. when you get into these situations and you're really now like at the bottom of your barrel, 
like what your mind and emotions come up with was really surprising. But what I was also surprised about is how quickly your mind can cure your body. You know, mm -hmm. you can be like head down at a stoplight one second and, um, you know, then work through that in your mind and coming back to this like extreme confidence or determination or whatever, you know, turning that corner again, how quickly, you know, your, your mental state will affect your physical state. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of that, I was surprised because I just thought it was more straightforward of like, okay, you know, you train and if you trained hard enough and you're in good enough shape, you know, you're going to be able to do it. But when you're talking about a distance this long, it's just inevitable that something is going to come up, you know, whether it's a cramp or a nagging or, you know, just in my case being completely unprepared. So stuff's coming out of left field all the time at you that you didn't know about because, yeah. you know, I never made it the full in my training, like the full distances, you know, I mm -hmm. never, uh, you know, I think the furthest I ran was 14 miles once, yeah. you know, so, uh, you know, I was nowhere close. So you're, you're in the unknown. And so that really surprised me just how your mental, uh, you know, how deep mentally you can go mm -hmm. in terms of your suffering or like what you're perceiving, you know, thinking about even some like of the deepest, darkest things, you know, just because you're being ripped down, you're being totally torn down mm -hmm. as an individual. And my God, <laughs> that was, that was an experience, you know, that was, yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. You, you feel that way? Yeah. Or, no. Yeah, you, so, just, um, like my first 70.3 experience, um, I, I had kind of similar snafus as you did, um, with the race. I had a flat tire before the race even started. Um, and luckily the bike technicians let me an entirely different wheel. Cause I have a kind of wheel that you can't replace it. It's a tube tubular. So the tire is the tube. You can't just replace it. It's glued on. Oh so he God. had to let me an entirely different wheel. So then my food got messed up and. I like got tunnel vision. My, my vision was literally going black for the last like five miles of the run and of the medical tent in the end. I was just like, just so out of it. So emotional. And I kept just being like, I didn't, you know, my, my goal was to qualify for as a professional. I think I ended up maybe like four hours, 40 minutes for that first one. I really need to be around like four hours, 15. So not even close. And, uh, I kept just being like, this is dumb. Like, why am I doing this after, you know, after, as I'm sitting in the medical tent and, uh, my coach always says, especially when it comes to big decisions, do not make any big decisions right after a race. You're always way too emotional because you're so drained physically. You just, you think you're maybe in the right state of mind to make a decision, but you simply aren't, you're not capable of making big decisions at that point in time because of the toll your body's taken physically, mentally, spiritually. Um, so yeah, I've, I've certainly been through the ringer a number of times, um, which is why I haven't had the desire to do a full because I know how hard I push myself through the halves. I'm like, I might die on the full. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's, that's I, why I back down. I wish I could offer some perspective. I have no perspective to offer. Yeah. You know, I've never done the shorter ones. Um, right. So, but they seem more intense because it's all about speed and like, yeah, like crazy, like all you got, because you know, you, you know, the distance it's, it's really the speed with which you do the distance, not necessarily, you know, um, but, and your approach is much different than mine. And this was a big separator between a lot of people and myself, because my goal, as much as it annoyed, I think the serious racers like yourself, like I was just, just my whole goal from the very beginning was like, let me just see if I can finish. You know, it was never about a certain time. Right. Right. It was never about, 
oh, I want to, you know, impress people with this or that. It was just like, let me see if I can survive this, you know. <laughs> and that was um, so that's, I think, a big distinction because, um, you know, you're now like empty in the tank, whereas I'm just trying to drag myself as right. far as I can go, you know. Right. So that, that yeah, was, there's, there's definitely a class difference there. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but there are people that, hey, let's just finish. If I, you know, improve on my time, that's great. And then there are, you know, and I spend most of my time with the people that are like, hey, I want to qualify. Hey, I want to win this race. Hey, you know, like there's a, a definitely different attitude. I, I think it it takes both kinds to make a race. Like I think, the, you know, I, I don't think you should have felt um, too alone just because I think the vast majority of the field is more, hey, let's finish this race. It's it's a monument in and of itself to finish it, let alone in three months. Dummy. <laughs> yeah, that's actually what I found. A lot of the um, old timers, or I guess like the people that really love the sports, were actually kind of annoyed by people's perspective of just wanting to finish. They yeah. were they thought that was sort of I don't know watering down is maybe the wrong word. Uh, that could be their perspective. I don't know if I would say that, but you know they just thought that it's like no, like I'm here because I love to swim, to bike, and to run, mm. and you're here because you're trying to prove something to yourself or because you're trying to, you know, like do a memorial to someone or, you know, whatever the case may be in the, in the book, I talk about a lot of different motivations people have, but I just found, you know, it was interesting as the sport has grown, there's sort of this now, maybe it's dramatic to say a conflict, but not really because people were kind of annoyed at me and my presence. Like even if, even if I was not like, Hey, I'm trying to do this on a short time frame, you know, even when I just said, Oh, you know, I'm just here. I want to see what it's about and, you know, see if I can do it. They were like, oh, okay, you know, well, move along, join the club. You know, it was kind of like, right. why, why this? You know, this is what I love to do. And, you know, I, I kind of understand that. If, if there was something I, you know, writing, like I'm very passionate about that. If someone's like, oh, I want to be a travel writer. I just want to see what it's like. I'm like, dude, this is my career. This is my thing. Like, back off, you know. Yeah. Don't so I can understand that perspective. And I don't know where you fall on that. I mean, obviously, more participation in the sport for whatever reason, is probably good for the sport overall. Um, but I know Ironman has really taken over because from an outsider before I came in, you know, you living in Hawaii, obviously you hear about Ironman a lot, right. but I don't really know. I couldn't tell you any other triathlon circles, you know, right, or, right, right. I'm sure that Ironman is not the only one, and nope. but it's become the most famous and the most, yeah. as they would say, iconic. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, it definitely dominates. There are essentially two scenes there's the long course scene, which is often half Ironman, Ironman, as Ironman buys up all of the races that are long course and brands them. And then there is ITU, which is International Triathlon Union, and it is a draft legal format for the professionals. So you can get, you can group up on the bike and draft in packs. So it is a more aggressive, um, tactical style of racing. And then it is basically a quarter of the length of an Ironman. Um, so yeah, there's two separate worlds. If you want to be in the drafting world, you have to be a very good swimmer. Cause if you don't get onto the bike in good position, your day's done. Yeah. Fair enough. You lost yeah. in the pack. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I'm kind of wondering if, you know, because of how like emotional training is and the race and everything, like, do you feel like that has changed you at all as a person? Are you, do you feel any different? Are there any kind of lasting effects aside from lingering soreness maybe? <laughs> um, yeah, I do, man. You know, like I, 
I appreciate you reading the book. One of the things that I was just interested was for, you know, people like yourself to read it, you know, people who are really passionate about this because I know I'm a dick, you know, like I know I'm coming out of this, like this is your baby. And I'm like, oh, some new guy coming in. Um, and of course, like throughout the book, like I'm doing my thing and being competitive and, you know, poking fun when that happens, you know, trying to be lighthearted about it. Um, but you know, over the course of my experience, you know, I didn't really expect it, but I did learn a lot of things. You know what? I have a, like a ton of respect for triathletes now, you know, um, you know, sort of at the end of the book, talking to one of my buddies, you know, about this idea of like perseverance, like is, is just such a, a huge human trait to have, right. Mm -hmm. Um, to be able to, because you know, in life, like, again, not to get too like broad, but I mean, we're talking about this breakdowns that you go through emotionally, like, you know, you really have to dig deep. And like, if you want this, you have to, you have to go and like, nobody's going to help you. And it has to all come within. And with something like the Ironman, or, you know, any triathlon, there are going to be hurdles, there are going to be walls, you're going to bunk, you're going to mm -hmm. screw up your nutrition, you're going to get two flat tires before the race even starts, you know, <laughs> You're going to have saddle soreness. You're going to have digestive problems, like all of these things I've experienced and yep. you can read about in great detail, you know? So there's so many reasons to quit along the way and nobody's going to blame you. Like mm -hmm. nobody in the, in the, you know, that I experienced was like, oh, wow, well, well, you know, I mean, most people were like, every time I would tell them about some of these ailments, they'd be like, well, dude, why the hell are you doing this? Like, of course you're going to have that. Like what, you know? And so. I don't know. I'm a writer. I like to philosophize a little bit. And I think that that idea of just persevering, even when it's just like everything is telling you like this is like dumb, you know, or like you're you're, you're you shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. But it's like, well, it doesn't matter because I want it, you know, and I can do it, you know, and that power of belief, I think, is so important. And I really saw that in a lot of competitors, you know, who, um, you know, maybe didn't have a business being there or didn't think they should be there or people told them they shouldn't be there. Um, and that was a big drive for people, proving to themselves and others that they could do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I take that mentality into other aspects of life, because whether it's your career or whatever it is, you know, there's going to be roadblocks and reasons to quit. And um, if you're going to quit, then you're not going to finish. Right. So right. Uh, and then what, what was all that for? You know, so I take that mentality away, that idea of perseverance um, and that idea that um, no matter what comes up in front of you, uh, you have a choice. Right. And no matter how big that wall is, like you always have that choice whether to climb it or not. And mm -hmm. it's up to you whether you take it. And those who climb it finish and those who don't, they don't, you know. So yeah. that's that was for me, I think. Yeah. So so one of the things I was wondering is who should actually read the book? I mean, are you are you trying to educate average Joe about it? Should triathletes read it? You know, and then I think with if you give it to a triathlete, you should be like Make it through the first half, like <laughs> try not to get too offended in the first half. But, but I mean, who 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 are you after with this book? Who should actually pick it up? Well, you know, I I mean, okay, like I I look at this project as something like okay, like Bill Bryson did with the App Trail, right? Like he, I'm a hiker. When I read that book, I was so annoyed with with him, you know, like for a lot of it because it was like, all right, man, like you are just completely kind of disrespect in something I love to do. You know, mm -hmm. you're coming at this like so naive. It doesn't even seem like you're trying to understand. Right. And but then when I got to the end of the book, I loved it. I was like, man, this is so like cool. You know, just he is ex like he's trying to capture something I experienced. And OK, it's not for him. Um, but, you know, and that really introduced a lot of people, both like avid hikers and just 
non-hikers to the app trail. Now that's like a huge thing. I'm not comparing myself to Bill Bryson. He's super successful. I'm just saying like, when I look at it, I'm like, I think anybody can read it. I, I tried to write it as, as approachable as possible. And it's just mm-hmm. like, here's my story, you know, and um, here it is. And if you want to learn what a triathlon and an Ironman's all about, and, you know, it's growing so much now that I think that everybody, even if they're not into the sport, they know someone who is. Mm-hmm. So maybe this can give them kind of an understanding of what people are going through. Um, and, uh, and just sort of that, like every man underdog kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people like you, um, you know, just some perspective on your own self and your own sport, um, not recognition in that sense, like, but mm-hmm. just, you know, someone has taken the time to kind of understand what you do and, um, you know, learn about it and suffer through it along with you and just yeah. kind of dig into it. And, you know, I, I tried to make it as lighthearted as I can because that's my personality, but I don't think there are any steak knives in there where I'm really driving it in your guy's heart and being like, you know, <laughs> you guys are stupid or wrong for doing this. You know, it's just yeah. sort of me coming in and as an outsider, like, you know, making light of what I see and, you yeah. know, trying to suffer through it along with you. So I hope it's for everybody. I mean, but only you guys will judge that. I mean, you still wanted to have me on an interview after you read it, which is, I guess, a good sign. You haven't, like, you know, and you didn't take the opportunity well, I mean, to, like, bash me, so that's good. I can talk to Chris about anybody. I mean, even if I'm like, this guy's really getting on my nerves, I'd be like, all right, let's 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 give him what's – no, no. It's, uh, no, I think the book is enjoyable. Um, I do – before I ask you where we can get the book, I do ask everybody – so this season, which is this year – uh, of the podcast, I asked everybody the same question. It's going to be a little bit different for you. Um, uh, maybe you'll give a little bit different perspective. But I ask everyone after a hard workout, or it could be a race. In your case, you only had one, so um, we'll say after a hard workout, uh, if you only get to choose one food for recovery, what do you choose? Wow. Okay. So one of the most disappointing things about this for me was that. A lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times after um, big workouts, you know, you keep picturing in your mind, at least for me, I was like, I'm picturing a beer the size of a trash can, you know, like get me through this. I can't wait to be done. Like, uh, you know, this is not, but your body kind of like rejects that. Like you get into this spot where you think like you're imagining this cold beer all the time and then you get there at the end of the workout and it's in your hand and it just doesn't taste very good, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of disappointing. I thought that was really cruel about this sport is that like motivation (laughs) of food the whole time. But by the time you've had like 10 goos and three cliff bars, you're kind of in the Gatorade, you're kind of like, yeah, you know? So, um, but for me, man, I'm pretty standard, dude. I'm a chicken and mashed potatoes kind of guy or chicken and baked potato. So, a lot of my workouts were just, you know, after that, I would have eat very plain and simple, either, uh, you know, mostly a chicken breast with some baked potatoes. And for me, that's like protein and carbs, super good, really easy to cook. You just put it in the oven and forget about it for a while. Um, and so that's what I usually went with. I had all these visions of, um, you know, after the attempt at the Ironman, what I was going to eat and da 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 da. But as you guys will read about and you've read about, by the time it was over, I just, I couldn't even eat. So it was yeah. so disappointing, man. I just yep. really, that was actually, thanks for bringing it up. I, I actually, this was like the most, <laughs> that was the most discouraging part of the whole thing was like, really? My body, this is cruel, all that. And now I can't even have my, you know, my final feast. Come on. That's, yep. <laughs> yep. yeah. So chicken and potatoes, buddy. Yeah. Chicken and potatoes. All right. Um, well, 
as we're recording this, this isn't out yet, but it will be as soon as you are. If you're watching this, it is available. Um, where can people pick up the book and read about your adventure? So the book should be at bookstores across the country, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. But obviously, welcome to 2019. The easiest way is to just jump online, swim, bike, bunk, Will McGough. Uh, you'll find it on Amazon and a bunch of different retailers, and you can buy the book that way. And uh, I hope that if it annoys you or you get pleasure out of it or whatever, you just want to talk shop, hit me up. Um, you can find my email, and I'm pretty approachable. So love to talk about the book sometime if you're interested. And you are low on on social media profiles, as I as I am as well. But if people want to find you, wakeandwander.com. Yeah, my company is Wake and Wander. If you type that in, you'll find it. Yeah, wakeandwander.com. Um, Will McGough is my name. I'm on you know Facebook and stuff like that. And uh, Will at wakeandwander.com is my email, which you can also find on the internet. So I'm a low profile in terms of how much I post, but you can find me on there. Yes. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on today, Will. Jesse, thank you so much, buddy. Appreciate it. Take care.